Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. This is AP Andy. And I'm Jamie Peck. And I, of course, am Sean KB. And we're here with Scott Frazier of LA Podcast. LA Podcast. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Thanks Morning. for being with us. Um, LA Podcast is one of my, I don't know, top five podcasts, which is kind of strange because <laughs> I have only been to LA twice pretty briefly. Uh, and I, I just started listening to it because I was a fan of Hollywood Handbook, which is a very stupid, like, that yeah. satire of, like, I guess, L.A. writer room culture, and I just needed more Hayes Davenport in my life. And so I started listening to L.A. Podcast just to see what it was all about. And pretty quickly, I got sucked into this cartoonish, like, cinematic noir world of hilariously corrupt L.A. politicians, um, uh, but also, like, just intriguing questions about urban design and transportation and homelessness advocacy. And I guess it's it just kind of convinced me that uh, L.A. is like sort of is, is kind of central to many of the social questions in the United States right now and historically. So we'll be going into that today, talking about some of that funny stuff about L.A. politics, but also I think mostly focusing on what's been going on with the L.A. Sheriff's Department and the uh, uh, the, the people they are killing and abusing over and over again and, and like what what is this LA Sheriff's Department is kind of the question I want to maybe focus on uh, but we want to start out um, with something a little bit more lighthearted as you start out on LA podcast every week with some LA stories yeah. uh, so Scott do you want to start us off sure uh, I, I have a great LA story this week uh, typically out of the Three of my co-hosts, of course, Hayes, you mentioned, and Alyssa Walker. I'm uh, very much the the indoor kid of the three of us, so I, I typically don't have uh, a ton going on in the span of a week. This week, however, has been really interesting just because, like, the, the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, Eric Garcetti, you guys are probably familiar with him as... Uh, from The Wire, he, yeah, we've heard of him. From, from The Wire, yeah. And um, Game of Thrones. Probably... <laughs> Probably the inspiration for the mayor in the wire, honestly, if I think about it, um, aside from the name similarity, but uh, also for, from his central role in the Biden campaign when everybody else in the Democratic Party was ready to abandon Biden. Uh, Garcetti got in on the ground floor. Uh, so in the spirit of trying to leave L.A. very quickly and also uh, be uh, politically ascendant when he does so, he has started capitulating wholesale to the small business owners, the like uh, petty bourgeoisie in LA, uh, and reopening every conceivable thing that he can, despite having said only a couple weeks ago that everybody would probably die if he <laughs> were to do that. Uh, so I, I go on these like my my only. Uh, sap to like self improvement during quarantine has been going on these like little jogs in my neighborhood. And the past week, as uh, Sunset Boulevard has started opening up and I'm seeing all these people out drinking and everything, I'm really torn because here I am podcasting like every week about how bad of an idea this is. And yet I'm running through and like looking at all these people just like having drinks like there's not a deadly pandemic on and I'm like maybe 
maybe these politicians are right. Maybe I should just throw my life away and just like have a beer on the street. <laughs> it's yeah, been fuck like it. My, my, it's been my struggle this week. I'm like, they're probably right that my life is not worth saving, right? So that's that. That's been my week. My my attempt to to keep myself alive, I guess. Yolo. Well, um. In New York City, stuff is not open yet, but people are just creating the bars outside of the bars, just drinking in the streets. <laughs> Tons of people. Uh, you hate to see it, folks. Andy and I were what talking else? about this today, and uh, I've been out a couple nights. I, it it kind of, the opening got me too, because I've started to do the drinking outdoors thing and like walking around. And it reminds me of the 2003 blackout in New York City when there was no jobs, people couldn't work because there was no electricity, and uh, everybody was drinking in the streets and, and hanging out. It's not exactly, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's bringing back some nice nostalgic moments for me. Well, it is good at least if you are openly drinking on a protest. Sure. <laughs> Which I think kind of contradicts the, the sort of talking point that the protests aren't spreading COVID because everybody's wearing a mask if you're constantly taking off your mask off to slurp a uh, pouch True. of margarita, uh, as I did yesterday in a, the critical mass. <laughs> uh, but the numbers are still going down, so um, that's positive, in New York at least. Um, yeah. well, J- Jamie, did I uh, interrupt your L.A. story? Yeah, what's, J- what's Jamie's L.A. story? No, no. Um, I, I was trying to think if I have any L.A. stories, because I've only been there a few times. Um, I've gotten more L.A. stories from my friend Cassie Ramon, who lives there, uh, about, like, partying at Joaquin Phoenix's house because her friend was, like, dating him, or walk, as his friends call him, or partying with Marilyn Manson. I was so jealous when she told me that one. I'm like, oh, is this just the kind of shit that happens when you're a musician and you live in, and you live in L.A.? Yes, yes, it is. Um, but the one that sticks in my mind, perhaps because I almost died is the time when Sean and I were in L.A. And, you know, we always look on Atlas Obscura to find cool shit. And there was this Nazi bunker that someone built in a canyon when uh, they really thought that the Nazis were going to, like, come invade America and they wanted to be ready for it or something. And uh, we were like, oh, that looks that sounds cool. Let's try to find it. But we didn't follow the directions right on Atlas Obscura. We took the wrong staircase that ended like pretty early. And then it was just like a whole lot of brambles and not no stairs and like rough fucking terrain. We never found the Nazi bunker. We tried so hard and then the sun was going down and we're like, shit, shit. We got to get out of this fucking canyon before uh, before it gets dark and we have to like call a helicopter or something and i was wearing like a sundress and shoes so it was uh it was a little tricky at one point i think i told sean you can just leave me it's fine but uh luckily we made it out eventually and lived to tell the tale hell yeah um there it was like uh it was an entire like uh pro hitler commune basically uh that was uh just up in the hills there and for whatever reason never got taken down in the 70 80 years subsequent uh but yeah basically just like the embodiment of that simpsons like uh i welcome our new nazi overlords was just like happening in the la canyons i heard that uh, they finally did take it down and i was really sad that i don't get to try again god i think it's still there all right i well, could that's i good. could 
I could be wrong, but yeah. Maybe but they dream, just, dream to try again. Maybe they just said they were going to take it down. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not the city's first priority. I mean, it shouldn't be the city's first priority. Certainly. There's a lot of stuff going on that they could focus on at this <laughs> point. It's true. <laughs> Great. So, Sean, what is your L.A. story? My L.A. story. Uh, Jamie told the Nazi bunker one. I mean, that was a that was a great time. I, I'd like to start my story. You almost got me. The Nazis almost got me. Well, you were a real trooper through that, I got to say. I'll uh, never you, really, you really stepped well, up you. as an Antifa to defeat the Nazis. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I want to start off by saying that I want to call a truce in the long war between New York City and L.A. that was started by Woody Allen back in the 1970s. It's not a battle. It's not a competition. Los Angeles and New York can both thrive, you know, together and separately. Yeah. Um, but I think my L.A. story, because I've been there a lot, I, you know, I, I, not for nothing am I calling it truce. I really do like L.A. a lot. It's, like, very different. My L.A. story is that every time I go to Los Angeles, and this has been many, you know, half dozen, maybe ten times, I always either borrow or rent a car, and I take the same drive, which is I go... Up, I go down Sunset and I go up into the hills and I take the, like Mulholland, I take those uh, high mm -hmm. streets all the way down to the water where it comes out on the, uh, on the Pacific Coast Highway and then I go up to Malibu and I go like jump in the water and I come back down and I make my way and it's kind of like every time I go it's kind of my, my welcome back to Los Angeles. It's beautiful and uh, you see a lot of shit and it's kind of like, a, yeah, it's a rite of passage for me every time I go. That's uh, very pleasant. Um, I think my, my L.A. story is just the, the first time I, I hung out there, uh, it was like my first day was just so on the nose, like stereotypical L.A., which is, I think, what I kind of like about L.A. is it's, it's, very, it's very true to itself, and it's like it's media representation. Um, so, like, I, I hitched a ride down there from Oakland with this woman who was like a a personal trainer and a nutritionist and a screenwriter mm. and like incredibly confident about all of her projects, but also incredibly neurotic at the same time. <laughs> um, so just a very LA person. And she dropped me off in, uh, in Echo Park where I was staying with like a friend of a friend and it was nighttime. I just like walked around looking for something to do. And I ended up at the Echoplex, which is a club there. And the scene, it was like a, a Saul, Saul Williams was headlining and the scene in there was like exactly out of less than zero. Like <laughs> these young, beautiful, fucked up kids in like wearing clothes that I've only seen people wear in hell. This has got like a very LA style, but also mixing with these kind of plastic surgery disaster people and like very sketchy people. And so I hung out there for a couple hours enjoying that, that those neon vibes. And then, uh, I don't know, after 1 a.m. or something, I went out to go back to where I was staying. And there was a police helicopter in the sky with a, a, a spotlight um, lo I, looking for, you know, in pursuit of somebody, perhaps on foot, perhaps in a high-speed chase. And I was like, damn, this is incredibly L.A. from, like, start to finish. Uh, so is L.A. the most base city? That's the question. Well, we're, we're going to talk about, I guess, that ladder interaction, uh, that, that helicopter um, uh, because that's sort of what's been in the news is uh, these strange occurrences that are, are increasingly centered around the L.A. Sheriff's Department 
um, about uh, the, the hanging, uh, possible suicide, possible murder of two black men, and uh, the subsequent uh, involvement of the Sheriff's Department. So maybe this is a good time to throw it to Scott. What, what is the L.A. Sheriff's Department and what's going on with them now? It's, it's interesting. I always actually, uh, I don't feel particularly the rival between New York and L.A., but what, one thing that I, I feel particularly envious about New York City when I, I look at uh, the way that the, the city government uh, exists and is structured there is that it's uh, it seems a lot more rational. I mean, rational doesn't mean better, doesn't mean better outcomes, but it does it does change how you interact with it, right? So, like L.A. by contrast, we have the uh, our sheriff's department. the The sheriff's department. Um, you, some of your listeners may not know this, but L.A. County has 88 cities and a million people who live in unincorporated county, 10 million people in total. So the sheriff's department polices uh, millions and millions of L.A. County residents, both for some of the smaller cities in Los Angeles on a contract basis, uh, places like West Hollywood, uh, Gardena, not Gardena, uh, Compton, uh, parts of the city that are like disproportionately black and brown relative to the overall population. Uh, they're in these outlying places and they have a very uh, spread out, diffuse presence throughout the region. There are also uh, like something like 30 other law enforcement agencies that are operating on various levels in different cities, municipal police like the LAPD, Long Beach police. Um, but the sheriff's department is the largest it is the largest law enforcement agency in uh, at least the state of California and also oversees the jail system in Los Angeles County. Excuse me, the jail system in Los Angeles County, which is uh, the, the largest, I believe, in the country. Um, I actually, which is, I read on Wikipedia it's the largest in the world. The LASD run the largest prison system in the world. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the sheriff of Los Angeles is, um, in charge of, uh, an enormous police force, uh, over 10,000 sworn officers. Uh, they, they do manage the apparently largest, uh, imprisoned population anywhere in the world, which is a, a particularly heinous distinction. Um, it is, it's one of those peculiarities of life in Los Angeles where, you could literally walk on uh, one side of the street and be policed by uh, the sheriffs, and you could cross the street and be policed by LAPD. We had a we had a uh, an incident here a couple months ago where a homeless individual was killed by LAPD, who had completely left their jurisdiction, gone into the sheriff's jurisdiction, and, and shot a homeless man who uh, they said had a gun, but actually was holding a bike part. So. Um, the, the sheriff's department and law enforcement here in general have a very fraught relationship with the uh, the people who actually live here. Of course, L.A. County is uh, majority minority. Uh, it is almost, um, I want to say almost three quarters non-white. So uh, when you have that dynamic, when you have such a... Uh, diverse population here as we do and also such a low income like uh, I think something that 
people don't really interact with when they come to LA from other places is that this is a very poor region. Economically, the, the products that we put out uh, generate a lot of money. It goes almost none of it to the people who are actually working class and live here. Um, so there's not a lot of wealth in the average household. Uh, there's a lot of poverty. And, um, and consequently, when you have a structure like the police, like the sheriffs, um, there is a ton of friction between uh, these uh, law enforcement entities and the people that they are uh, allegedly there to protect in reality, as, as you well know, um, are, are there to uh, protect the interests of the people that they actually care about from the working class black and brown folks here. Yeah, I was thinking about even just the geography of L.A., uh, is so different for the working class because, you know, New York has a decent public transit system. So even if you are living in a poor area, you are not isolated. You have a way to get to and from work very reliably. And you can go and like take advantage of all the great halls of culture that our city has to offer people for, you know, usually not that much money versus in Los Angeles. Um, it seems like extremely bifurcated between people who have cars and people who don't like when I've gone there and not had a car and taken public transit, it definitely feels very different than in New York city when absolutely everybody takes it. It's, it's completely different. Uh, my, my background is actually in studying the, the transit system here, uh, such as it is, there's a, uh, there is a bus system that, conceivably could be very good in terms of quality but is not um, and that is wholly because the uh, the politicians that run it run the transit system here kind of view it more of uh, a charity organization like they they kind of are just like we're doing this um, in order to demonstrate that we're good people not because we think that this is a service that the people who use it should actually materially benefit from uh, like you're saying, though, the the people who ride transit in L.A., uh, the population that rides transit here has like a median household income. So not even just personally, but household income under twenty thousand dollars a year. Uh, definitely not enough to live on. Uh, I would say a substantial portion of the people who who ride it here are homeless and uh, Metro, our transit agency, makes no uh, no bones about the fact that they want those people off the system and they frequently sick the police on them to, uh, prey on them. Well, so, let's, uh, let's yeah. hop on one of those Metro buses or, uh, sure. Lime scooters and go to, uh, where I, I, th I think two weeks ago now, um, a young man named Robert Fuller was found, uh, dead hanging from a tree outside of, uh, Palmdale City Hall, I think. Is that right? Um, and uh, it was revealed that just uh, a week or two before that, another young man named Malcolm Harsh was found dead uh, near a homeless encampment near Palmdale in a very similar way. And the L.A. Sheriff's Department immediately ruled both of these a suicide, even though that seems to me, at least, to be a very suspicious way to commit suicide. And then it, it, there, there began to be multiple stories of, of hangings like this all across the country, including here in, uh, in, in New York and Fort Tyrone Park. A young man was found uh, in the exact same way, in, in Texas as well. And 
you know, I'm not of the mind to immediately jump to assume that some white supremacist group or the police or the two working in concert are, uh, are, are committing these, these lynchings. Um, I think it's plausible that these are suicides, and the family of Malcolm Harsh has recently come out and said that they do believe that it is a suicide. However, the, due to the conspiratorial nature of the LAFD and how they've reacted in the weeks since the scrutiny uh, has come upon them for this, how they uh, rush to that judgment, um, it, it somewhat doesn't matter what the true story was because nobody trusts this organization to uh, effectively investigate. And it's become, I think, a, a movement within the movement to look into these lynchings, uh, potential lynchings, especially that of Robert Fuller. Um, do you want to, to go over how that's played out? Yeah. Um, so like you were saying, Robert Fuller was found near Palmdale City Hall, uh, hanged from a tree. And this is in the context of uh, Palmdale, the, in the part of LA County known as the Antelope Valley uh, high desert region, where a lot, like a, a substantial portion of what was formerly, formerly the city of Los Angeles's black community has been pushed out to like 70 miles from the city by gentrification over the course of the past three decades. Uh, it is a very conservative part of LA County. It is a part that has a long history of, uh, white supremacist, uh, affiliated groups meeting there. Um, and so when you do have, in the in the context of uh, these Black Lives Matter protests against police violence, protests against state state sanctioned violence happening in this city uh, and region, I do think that it is um, something that has drawn a lot of people's attention to see this uh, archetypical image of a uh, black man lynched in front of a city building uh, to have really no further information made available that would lead credence to the, I, I, I do believe in general that, uh, whatever police are saying when somebody's found dead should probably not be, uh, put forward as the actual course of events that took place without some, uh, significant independent corroboration. When you have something like this, uh, where the image is one of, a, a black man lynched. Um, this is not historically speaking, black men haven't, uh, roped themselves to, to trees. Um, that's not, it's not really something that we see historically happening. So like you said, it is, it is definitely conceivable that that's what happened. I think that there's a fair degree of, of skepticism that people have about that. And it's only increased by the reluctance of the, the sheriff's department to be more, uh, forthcoming. Their response, as is typical of, of this sheriff, Alex Villanueva, is to say, uh, the public should trust us. And as a matter of fact, uh, we're, I imagine we're going to talk about it shortly, but in respect to one of the later events of this past week, he actually came out and said, the public should trust us, and if they don't, it is only because Black Lives Matter and related groups are spreading conspiracy theories, and people shouldn't trust them. So, and we, uh, yeah, and the we know that the, the balance uh, of trust does not lie in his favor, uh, despite all that. And even if you could make an argument that you know they have a record of being trustworthy, uh, which you can't, um, everything that they've done since um, attention came to the uh, Robert Fuller case has 
just proven why they're not trustworthy. Uh, last week, they killed Taryn Jamal Boone, who is the half-brother of Robert Fuller, in an incident that is incredibly suspicious. They claim to have pulled him over, and he just started opening fire on, on the sheriff deputies uh, in front of his, uh, his, his wife or his partner and their daughter. Um, and then, uh, just a couple days ago, they rolled up on a, I don't know what kind of business it is, but they rolled up on a business and killed the security guard there, Andres Gardado, claiming that he had an uh, unregistered weapon, um, although I, I think witnesses say that he was fleeing from the sheriff's department, um, that he had never carried a weapon, and then the sheriff's department proceeded to remove, uh, in a sort of seemingly vandalistic fashion, all of the cameras from the area. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the other two killings by police that you, that you mentioned, by, well, not even just by police, by, by the sheriff's department. So we have uh, Taryn Boone, who was uh, very public in, in the days following the death of, uh, of his brother, saying that he didn't believe that this was uh, a suicide, saying that he didn't believe that his, his brother was suicidal. Uh, then... Again, we end up in a, in a situation where, like you're saying, we, we have what seems like um, a truly, uh, in, in the most literal sense of the of the term, truly incredible sequence of events where the sheriffs kill Taryn Boone and then, as the only remaining witnesses are saying, um, he engaged them in a, a shootout, basically, like just on the side of the road. Um, again... No evidence has come out to my mind that would actually support that sequence of events. And it does, in the context of, uh, of everything else going on, seem extremely suspicious. Add to that in a completely different part of the, the county, in the, uh, in the, the South Bay. This, uh, Gardena is a, is a city that was formerly, um, actually, formerly had as a mayor, Paul Tanaka, who w went on to become part of the largest uh, sheriff's department scandal in recent history uh, when he was uh, found guilty of actually hiding a, uh, uh, an FBI witness within the jail system. They basically kidnapped and disappeared him within the jail in order to prevent the FBI from finding out that they were routinely beating inmates for Holy no reason. Shit. So that was the former mayor of Gardena. Uh, this is a, uh, a part of town that is heavily uh, Asian, specifically Japanese-American, and um, also with a still substantial black and brown community as well. Uh, at this garage, uh, I believe it was a, a, an auto body garage, where Andres Gardado was a, a security guard, we have differing uh, accounts. The police account is that uh, basically he deserved it because he had an illegal firearm and, um, and he was running away from them. And so they shot him in the back and killed him. And that's their uh, quote-unquote justifiable, justifiable version of events. Um, it still is not known what they were actually doing there. It's out of their jurisdiction. Uh, this is like the jurisdiction of Gardena police, uh, city police. Uh, and it, there was no like record of a call that has been released that would end them up at that location. Then you have witnesses to the scene saying uh, that he was on his knees. He had started running because he was scared. He was on his knees and they shot him uh, in the back. 
everybody agrees on that point apparently. And then, uh, yes, the owner of the business actually said that the sheriffs then took cameras that were, um, pointed in the direction that, uh, that the murder took place in, uh, anything that would have been reviewing would have shown footage on that, uh, on review. And they took the DVR and later produced a warrant for, for that. But yeah, they basically just vandalized the business, like you were saying, and and then left. Jesus. I mean, you want evidence that this institution is rotten to the core. Uh, in this environment, especially, the idea that they would not treat a black man found hanging from a tree as in any way suspicious and immediately rule, not, not even pretend to investigate just shows that they don't give a fuck and they're not accountable to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, the sheriff has frequently been, um, he, he hasn't been in office that long. He, he was somebody who kind of, uh, who kind of snuck into this is, this is a good, I think, reminder of, uh, how how reform for these types of agencies often plays out. We, we had, uh, Sheriff Baca who was implicated and arrested now serving time in the, the scandal I told you about earlier, uh, in hiding that federal witness from the FBI. Uh, he, when he left, a reformer came in that reformer, uh, Jim McDonald, did not make substantial changes during his single term as sheriff. Then we had another reformer, this one, Alex Villanueva, come in and say, um, I can actually do the reforms, get ICE out of the jails, things like that, that people want to see. Um, however, in his single term so far, he has been openly hostile to the notion that uh, rank and file deputies in the sheriff's department should behave any differently and that criticism that is made of them things like um you know don't shoot teenagers in the back is unfair that that kind of criticism shouldn't be levied against his um against his officers so uh, this is like it, it's kind of like the the rock that reform always seems to sink on basically for for the police hey don't judge a pig until you've walked a mile in his hooves <laughs> <laughs> um so so what are what's the uh the activism or the um the protests now uh corresponding to the robert fuller case and and andres Gardado and, and ls lasd in general shaping up to be so there have been protests up in in uh, palmdale for justice for Robert Fuller this past week. Um, there have been Black Lives Matter-led protests for, for both him and Taryn Boone, of course, following his uh, following his death as well. Um, Andres Guardado, uh, we're recording this on, on Sunday, and today uh, the, I, I believe also the, the youth justice movement is organizing a protest from the site where he was killed by police out to uh, the Compton Sheriff's State Station. So uh, I'm going to be watching that very closely the rest of the day because that is is going to be a very uh, it's going to be a very heartrending uh, protest. I'm sure it is also going to be very tense. The the sheriffs have a uh, 
an incredibly violent history. Just they do not they kind of treat themselves. This is something you hear, I think, a lot about L.A. cops. They they act like an occupying force that is even more true in in South L.A. in places like Compton. Um, And when you have this sort of like uh, quasi colonial, uh, quasi martial law enforcement entity, they don't they don't react well to like you coming to their front door and telling them um, that they should fuck themselves. Right. Like they don't they don't respond well to that kind of challenge to authority in this really like um, sad sack uh, colonial sort of relationship that we have with our, our police out here. So I, I'm going to be watching that protest march pretty closely. So I heard that the cops really cracked down when the protests made it to the rich people neighborhood of Beverly Hills. Is that true? Because uh, I've driven through Beverly Hills before and always uh, thought, oh, how nice of the ruling class to put themselves in these hills where they're like <laughs> really, really just easy to burn them down. Yeah. When should parody, should the time ever come to like parody the ruling class? Um, is that true? Right. Uh, yeah, that is that is true. So Black Lives Matter here, uh, they I first started going out with Black Lives Matter on protests back in 2013. We were we were marching from South L.A., from Lamer Park uh, and um, and Crenshaw out to like downtown L.A., which um, if you're not familiar with the geography of L.A., that takes you pretty far away from those rich neighborhoods like Beverly Hills, like West Hollywood and, and Fairfax. Um what happened this year and how this was different was that Black Lives Matter said, uh, OK, we we see that every everything that we do, every peaceful march we do, no matter how large, uh, depending on where we are in the city, it can just be totally ignored. It can be just like pushed to the side. Um, and uh, more particularly, the, the white liberals that live in L.A. can actually say, I support this because it's happening somewhere else. I, I support uh, I support justice for Trayvon Martin or I support justice for Eric Garner. So Black Lives Matter um, decided to uh, I, I don't I won't speak to their exact reasoning, but from my perspective, they decided to escalate the uh, the the protest by taking it to these neighborhoods by actually uh, refusing to let the white Angelinos here, uh, like our, our mayor, who has frequently said that he's on the side of the protesters, refusing to, to let them make it all about things that happen other places and are done by other people. By taking that uh, to Beverly Hills and to Fairfax, yeah, that, that caused the biggest police reaction so far. We had this protest out in uh, out in the Fairfax district here, which is, uh, a, a neighborhood that's known for like, uh, streetwear stuff. You know, there's like the odd future store and like, you know, a bunch of rappers have clothing stores out there. Um, and then there's like Supreme and, and whatever. So then going to this, uh, for all that, it is still a, a white neighborhood and an upscale neighborhood. So going to that neighborhood, provoked uh, a reaction from the cops that they uh, were, despite being said to be like so restrained and so good at de-escalation, they showed up and they immediately started escalating. They were 
uh, firing rubber bullets, of course. They were driving into crowds of protesters. When the march started approaching Beverly Hills, leaving the city of L.A. and going into Beverly Hills, the sheriff's department was actually lined up on the border there of Beverly Hills, lined up on the border of wow. West Hollywood, and uh, and not allowing protesters into those wealthy independent cities. Is it, it, this is uh, this is the way that that law enforcement is deployed in Los Angeles, protecting not, not subtly, protecting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, you hear a lot of tisk tisking when there's unrest in black neighborhoods, right? Like, oh no, they're burning down their own neighborhoods. That's so sad. But like, they don't like it when it happens in rich neighborhoods <laughs> either. Like, something tells me this is not the most sincere concern on their well, part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, speaking speaking as a black Angelino, the the argument that has been put out after uh, after Watts in uh the 1960s watts riots uh my dad my dad was uh living with his family in watts at the time um and again after the the rodney king riots in 92 um the the argument like you're saying jamie is always like uh what are these black people doing they're destroying their neighborhoods they're just destroying the the sense is like they are saying that that we black angelinos in our ignorance are destroying all of the gifts that white los angeles has given to us right like they're definitely not saying that they want us to be any closer to them but they are saying that they're using it basically as a referendum i think on on uh black intelligence and other qualities that they they think that we don't possess so um contrary to that you know black lives matter has done an incredible job targeting like with uh surgical precision the exact places where these protests should be uh taking place to elicit maximum effect to force the the white liberals to either say uh i'm on the side of the police as multiple of our council members and our mayor have done or to say, I don't think our police should be operating uh, in this way, running over protesters, shooting them with rubber bullets, shooting uh, people with disabilities in the face, you know, like pick pick one or the other, basically. And, and Black Lives Matter has been very effective at forcing that uh, choice to become much more publicly visible. Something that's been remarkable about the, the uprising uh, at its inception was that a lot of the looting and, uh, to a lesser extent, arsons um, were, were not happening. We're not playing into that old rhetoric of you're burning down your old neighborhood that's, you know, well-worn from Watts to the L.A. riots to, to even Ferguson. Uh, they were happening in, you know, uh, bougie neighborhoods, uh, like luxury stores were being looted. And, and here in New York, most of the looting was happening in Soho for streetwear brands and Louis Vuitton and Chanel and stuff like that. And it was an incredibly populist thing where even people who don't like the idea of looting kind of shrugged and was like, yeah, well, it's Soho. Like, <laughs> I don't really care so much. Um, but we wanted to talk, this is a good jumping off point to talk a bit about the history of riots and political struggles and political policing in L.A. Um, Sean, do you want to go into that a bit? Oh, sure. I mean, if I had my way, I could probably wax on for... 45 minutes to an hour Sean about Sean Davis history. over here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'd be more than happy to speak a little bit on the history because I think that um, 
when we think about the stakes of um, what Black Lives Matter and uh, associated uh, activists in this multiracial movement, uh, what they're trying to accomplish, I think it's, it's difficult to put too fine a point on how endemic and systemic uh, and intractable this police problem is. I mean, we already talked about the Watts riot, which was, what, 65? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 65 with Watts and then 1992 with the L.A. riots, of course, coming from a very spectacular, and I mean that in all ways, uh, public beating of a black man on the streets of uh, South Los Angeles. So, you know, obviously this is a problem that's been going on for a long time, but I think that to get to the, the roots of this, you have to look at uh, how Los Angeles developed, uh, how it developed differently from other cities, but also, in a sense, how it was kind of um, the leading edge of policing in the United States, because going back to the early 20th century, especially with the Chandler family, which ran the uh, Los Angeles Times, there was this big push towards boosterism, towards making Los Angeles seem like the city of the future, making Los Angeles seem like the place that um, Midwestern wasps would want to move to, uh, a place where uh, the military industrial complex would like to put jobs and other capitalists would like to have a uh, shall we say uh, a labor market that's more pliable, uh, that's more that's cheaper uh, and, and happier and more content than other places in the country. So from the very beginning, there was this potent mix of um, corporate boosterism and essentially propaganda uh, that led to a Los Angeles that explicitly said, we don't have the racial divisions that other people have because we keep the black people out, because we take this primarily, of course, uh, Mexican-American uh, area and we move the Mexican-Americans out the Asians out, or at least we make it so that they're less visible uh, and, and all that stuff. So, like, you know, if you go back to the 1920s, you know, which is really the heyday of the open shop movement, the anti-union kind of pro-business moment in America, it's also when the uh, police forces of, and I use plural, of course, because I think you were very eloquent about uh, how complex and uh, uh, how complex all the different police operations are there but basically like um the lapd and the la sheriff's department became literally a tool of capital uh when they created the red squads in the 1920s which were counterintelligence squads within the lapd that would uh infiltrate uh be provocateurs uh beat up and sometimes kill anybody that stepped out of line in los angeles and was trying to fight the vision of open shop, of, uh, of a white sort of utopia there. And that, that history has continued. I mean, obviously, even after um, black and brown people start to move in en masse in the 1930s to the 1960s with these waves of migration out from the South, um, and obviously the opening up of uh, working class jobs for those folks, I mean, the, the, the terrain shifts in the sense that like you now have a multiracial working class in Los Angeles, but that just means that the police uh, need to double down, right, and use the same sort of tactics they used against the Reds against the working class of Los Angeles. So this occupied, the sense that it's an occupying force is a very, very old, very old and, and, and an intractable issue that Los Angeles has been dealing with. And I think it, 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 it points to how poignant the idea of abolition is right now because you're talking about 100-year history and you're talking about potentially, or at least people trying to finally solve this problem, finally get the boot of the state off of people's necks, off the working class's neck, and everything follows from that because if you're not terrorized in your community, 
you know, and you're not uh, constantly fearing for your life, then, uh, yeah, it opens up a lot of possibilities for, you know, not just living life, but also doing other political act activities. That's my history spiel. <laughs> did I do all right? You're, you're an Angelino. Did I do okay? Yeah, I think you did a great job on that. Um, it is, it's absolutely the case. I, I mean, one of the things that is uh, most striking to me in, in recent history, um, do you guys remember the, uh, God, what was that guy's name? Dorner? Chris Dorner? Oh, I remember it? Dorner. Uh, the, the guy who was killing LAPD cops, basically. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we, he... We parody Stan a king. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting because uh, I was working... Uh, at the time, I was working as, like, a hospital courier. I was, like, doing this, like, overnight work, with very blue-collar job, um, and working with people who were from a ton of different backgrounds, people who were not just black, but also... Uh, Filipino people that were uh, from various parts of Central uh, and Latin America, and the reaction to this this guy saying, a former police officer saying, uh, "Police officers are racist. I am going to kill them when I find them." Um, people were kind of just like it was. It was kind of like. At first, you're like, oh, there's a guy on the loose and he's killing people. That's scary. And then you find out like, oh, there's a guy on the loose and he hates cops and he's killing cops. And I'm serious when I say at my workplace, people were kind of just like, oh, OK, that that's kind of a relief, honestly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so strange because um, it, it just seemed like such a for Los Angeles, which is not known for being a bastion of like. Uh, leftist liberatory politics, the deep-seated hatred that people have for police and law enforcement here is very real. And I think it, it comes from exactly what you were talking about, Sean. It comes from this, uh, from this history of uh, the police being not as likely, but much more likely to be uh, victimizing the majority of the people who live here than like providing them any kind of material aid or comfort. That is a legacy that um, is evident in every single period of this city's history ever since uh, ever since it became part of the United States of America. So it's not something that uh, I, I very much feel like the more mainstream wing of the Democratic Party from which all of our politicians locally come, uh, they have quite a difficult job in trying to convince even the average citizen or voter uh, that reforming the LAPD, reforming the sheriff's department is possible. As we speak, uh, the sheriff's department still has um, potentially like a, a dozen active gangs. These are, uh, these are very much gangs in the mold of the street gangs, uh, that you, you hear so much about in LA, except they have official license to, um, to pick fights with anybody to, uh, to brawl with one another, to kill people. And then they receive protection from people in the, the higher ranks. So it's, it's a much, actually much more successful version uh, of the street gang model. And it is, um, it is something that I think Angelinos 
expect from from law enforcement. I think that this is the uh, a more mainstream version of how law, law enforcement is perceived in Los Angeles than most people really realize. Yeah, these are gangs like the with names like the Banditos, the Grim Reapers, and I think the historical one is called the Vikings that were more just explicitly white supremacists, like a yeah. you know like Aryan white nationalist culture oriented. Just just to be clear, we're talking about uh, members of the sheriff's department creating their own gangs within the sheriff's within department. the sheriff's yeah. department. Yeah, Jesus. I was reading some of these stories, too, and in cases where uh, members of these gangs or, you know, the LAPD or LASD in general, which could be considered gangs unto themselves, when they are caught doing horrible shit, it's up to them to investigate themselves, which doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) It's like... It's like a horror movie, right? When you like the, the protagonist runs to someone for help and they're like part of the Borg too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with the, with what just happened with, uh, Guardado in, uh, Gardena, I, I was um, thinking on almost exactly what, what you just said, Jamie, like the responsibility and, and this uh, extends to the local press as well, who frequently just like post, this is what the police said it, it happened, right? Um, it's kind of like if you were to say, uh, it, like you're saying in a horror movie, it's like you at press time, like we could only find Michael Myers's boss who tells us like <laughs> he's a good guy and he wouldn't carve up children without a reason, right? It's like, like hockey. so it's camp, <laughs> camp counseling. <laughs> uh, and uh, we should also mention that, uh, the gang culture within the LSD is so much more absurd because the LSD and uh, L, uh, and normal police are incredibly repressive on not only gang members but anyone thought to be associated with gang members. Yeah, there, this has been um, we've we've actually won uh, the the people of Los Angeles have almost i would say won the fight against gang injunctions there might be a few still remaining uh but i believe that the practice has been ruled unconstitutional which i mean it was obviously gang injunctions uh were obviously always uh, an abrogation of civil rights and always just a tool that was used by the state by politicians to uh accelerate gentrification and the mass removal of black and brown uh communities basically wholesale gang injunctions um the sheriff's department would basically say uh or the police department would say uh we have uh a region a part of this city where there is known to be a street gang operative uh we get a gang injunction that says uh basically like if you're latino and you live in echo park um you are caught in this huge net of what could potentially make you considered gang affiliated, in which case you're named in an injunction. You're not allowed to have meetings of more than like three people, including potentially members of your own family. Uh, you're not, you could be arrested for like, say, uh, one of the new, white ladies moves into echo park and she's on a jog with her dog or whatever and you like look in her direction you could be arrested for menacing her or doing anything that the sheriffs determine is like gang-like behavior oh, like the scottsboro uh, boys right 
Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's, that is a practice that is on its way out. But like you're saying, the, the sheriff's department comes down very hard on, on street gangs, even to the point of violating basic, uh, freedoms that are, uh, supposed to be guaranteed by the bill of rights. However, uh, when it comes to their own participation in these gangs, the sheriff, Alex Villanueva here has, has said, uh, people can associate with whoever they want. So I couldn't possibly tell, I couldn't possibly tell my deputies not to engage, uh, in gangs that involve things like beating in rituals for new deputies or that get into large drunken brawls with other gangs within the, the sheriff's department, uh, as famously happened here back in 2010, um, or espouse like, uh, openly white nationalist views like the Vikings did. He's basically said, there's nothing I can do about it because I respect their freedom too much. It's a very different tack than the one that they take with the residents of the region. Free association for uh, cops to get death head uh, tattoos on them <laughs> secretly, but no free yeah. association to like organizing your workplace or whatever. Yeah, like if you, I mean, if you're brown and you live in the wrong neighborhood, you might not be able to have dinner with your parents. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's kind of the approach that they take. Man, you've done so many good episodes on this subject. Like I, I'm just thinking of the one you did about uh, about the way the uh, the police department uh, claimed Nipsey Hussle uh, after he was oh, killed. It's just after you know, uh, you know, harassing him and his their whole life and then claimed that they were working together after he died when he couldn't defend himself. Yeah. One story I found when I was doing research for this episode was uh, a cop was caught uh, harassing and stalking his ex, who was a former cop, I believe. There was video of him trying to break into her apartment, all kinds of abuse on the record. And um, they actually retaliated against her for reporting it and uh, disappeared a witness in the case. Like, you talked about it on your podcast. They said that yeah. this therapist was dead, and then later on, they're like, oops, no, she's actually still alive. <laughs> and, like, the, the kind of malfeasance here, like, they can't even stand up for a victim of abuse when it's a cop. So, like, yeah. what does that say about their willingness to protect anybody else? This is a, this is a sheriff who has said that he is like the I think he holds himself up as an example of like the best that law enforcement leadership has to offer in terms of elevating women in law enforcement. Uh, one of his first things that he did was was exactly what you're describing, Jamie. He like he had a friend of his, uh, Carl Mandoyan, who was accused of stalking an ex, was fired uh, and Villanueva actually from the campaign trail started bringing this guy in basically having him, he was serving as his driver on the campaign. Uh, but he, his bigger role in the campaign was going to deputies and saying Villanueva is bringing me back, uh, because he thinks that it was bullshit that I was let go for stalking my ex. And, uh, this is what you can expect if he gets elected. So that happened. Villanueva came in, immediately processed this uh, reinstatement for Mandoyan, said that there had been no evidence that uh, that was worth firing this person. Uh, 
Uh, and then later, that video that you're talking about of him actually breaking in, uh, attempting to break into the woman's apartment, like she had said, uh, that comes out. He still, uh, he had to be removed from the force by the board of supervisors because the sheriff refused to do it. He, he basically just stopped getting paid by, by the county. Part of the way that uh, especially the liberals and the Democratic Party and some of the media are trying to push back on this is they're trying to do more uh, implicit bias training. And they're trying to diversify workforces. It sounds like Villa, Villa, Villanova is on the, uh, on the forefront of the new freedom they want to offer, which is the freedom to be shot in the back seven times by a WOC cop. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly. He has said that he has done more to diversify the sheriff's department than anybody. Um, the fact of the matter is that the sheriff's deputies remain incredibly violent. They remain incredibly unaccountable. And uh, if you get shot in the back while you're at work, the way that happened to Andres Guardado, that doesn't really matter to you what what color the person was or what gender the person was who pulled the trigger uh it is it's not it's not a change in some um well we're running out of time here so let's let's try to wrap it up i really wanted to talk about uh one of the themes on your show about homelessness uh because there's been these these court battles and and policy questions about what to do with la's um very substantial homeless population uh, and the plan that uh, Garcetti and a lot of the politicians seem to be going forward is uh, with is uh, connected to Trump's uh, homelessness czar Stephen Marbutt's plan to essentially put homeless people into concentration camps cool. yeah. where they have to uh, you know uh, uh, work their way to freedom. Um, and I don't think we're going to have a lot of time to go into that, but I encourage people to listen to LA podcast episodes about that. And also, we did we talked a lot about it uh, on our Swamp Side chat episode about uh, the, the Star Trek episode where there is a anti-neoliberal revolution in the year 2024 that start in one of these homeless concentration camps in San Francisco. Uh, okay. But we're not going to be able to go into that right now. I just want to wrap it up by, by asking, um, I know Garcetti did an interview with The Appeal recently, which is a sort of left-wing activist site about le- legal issues. And then previously, before this uprising started, he had basically been pushing a city budget that was a jobs program for cops. That's how you described it. Um, How has he moved since the uprisings began? Uh, Very reluctantly, I would say he has he has moved slightly to the left. But we're talking about a politician who is uh, I God, I, I, I hope uh, I'm correct in describing him this way. I would say he's right of center on, on, uh, relative to like what people in LA believe certainly, but also probably on a national level. I think he's right of center on criminal justice issues. He has repeatedly, uh, been a politician who has said, uh, as Sean, I think mentioned, uh, that, the inherent bias that that is what he touts as like the largest uh criminal justice reform not only that he has secured during his tenure but that has been uh secured in probably the time since his his father was DA in the 90s uh that amount of te- of, of training being added to to the cops uh regular training uh package that they have 
um, has not made a difference. We have 600 people here murdered by police in the past uh, eight years during the time he's been in office. Um, so his response to what is happening now is, first of all, he's acting as though these are the first times that, that Black Lives Matter demands have ever been put to him. Um, that is, of course, not true. They've been protesting him uh, with a, an almost single-minded fury for uh, the whole time that he has been in office since 2013, um, his changes that he is proposing now, he's on board with the, the council president is really to, uh, basically the, the, the sum of the, the total change is to, uh, reduce the LAPD budget by $100 million. Um, that is about the same amount that he was proposing that he actually did increase the budget by this year. We're talking about a $3 billion uh, police budget for the city alone. So, uh, so he's talking about a minor change and he has repeatedly fallen back on his love for cops, his view of them as guardians, um, as uh, keeping neighborhoods safe, etc. cetera. Um, he is not moved by the substance of the, of the protests such as they are. And to my mind, just like he did with the abolish ice protests a couple years ago, he's, he's trying to see whether or not he can co-opt this without meaningfully changing his positions. Jesus. Yeah. Um, on the topic of homelessness, um, I read a pretty infuriating quote from Mayor Garchetti in, um, an LA story about how he visited a homeless camp and then, very soon after, it was swept, quote unquote, cleaned up, and people lost all their tents and belongings. And he said, and I quote, one of the things I'm doing consistently is getting out there on the street, A, to see the conditions in neighborhoods that I hear about from constituents and stakeholders, and B, to talk to folks and see if I can help inspire them to get off the street. <laughs> yes. One of the things that's kind of magical is, as mayor, sometimes I can make a difference of whether someone says, Today's the day I'll actually come off the streets. As if homeless people are deciding to be homeless and all they need is a little inspiration. It's like, have you tried not being homeless? <laughs> but those inspirational uh, posters of like the frog hanging on or something to a branch, just put those all over. The, I would downtown. simply rent an apartment. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, I know you got to go, Scott. Thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, Anything, uh, any thoughts you want to leave us with or any plugs? Any calls to action? Um, calls to action. Black Lives Matter is still out. Uh, if you're in L.A. protesting our DA, who, uh, like I mentioned a, a couple of uh, minutes ago, has not, not protested or not prosecuted any cops for any of the 600 uh, murders that they've committed during the time that she's been in office. They go out there to the L.A. Hall of Justice every Wednesday. Um, if you uh, if you are interested in L.A. political issues, my show is called L.A. Podcast. We do it every week on Monday uh, and it's fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank I, you. I really Thanks for coming this. Thanks for coming and keep on puncturing that punctilious boomer ass prick Jim Morrison <laughs> with your excellent parodies. <laughs> Well, there.